That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 292. It's titled, Will Infinite Money Save the Economy? Governments and central banks around the world are working on measures to combat the economic recession, the contraction, really the shutdown of the economy related to the pandemic. Social distancing is causing people, rightfully so, to stay home. Jobs will be lost. Businesses will be hurt and are being hurt. And it is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and other central banks around the world to be the lender of last resort and for federal governments to step up and provide stimulus and emergency relief to households and businesses. Now, there's a great deal of discussion with regard to how that relief should be delivered. In this episode, we're going to look at some of the things that the Federal Reserve has announced. And it appears the U.S. government will announce. I'm recording this on Tuesday, March 24th. They've not passed the final emergency relief bill yet. But we have some indication of what it will contain. And we want to look at perhaps some unintended consequences, namely the potential for inflation given the level of stimulus. It is a challenging thing for politicians and central banks right now. I do not envy their situation. But we'll see and discuss it. And is there anything we can do to protect ourselves in case things don't necessarily go as planned? Last Sunday on the 60 Minutes News program, Scott Pelley interviewed Neil Kashkari. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. He's the former assistant treasury secretary. He's a member of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. So he is in the room when the Federal Reserve is discussing what should be done. In the interview, Kashkari mentioned there was a huge demand for cash, dollar bills by businesses. And he says the Federal Reserve, and as a member of the FMOC, we will absolutely meet those demands for cash withdrawals. Pelly asked him, will the Federal Reserve just print money? Kashkari responds, that is literally what Congress has told us to do. That is the authority they have given us to print money and provide liquidity into the financial system. We create it electronically. And we can also print it with the Treasury Department. He mentioned how there are stresses in the bond market, that it is freezing up. Companies are having difficulty borrowing money to fund their operations. And we've also seen a lack of liquidity in bonds. There are too many sellers and not enough willing buyers. Liquidity 
is the ability to buy or sell an asset without impacting its price. If there's a huge demand to sell a security and there's not enough willing buyers, then the price drops. So when Kashkari says the Federal Reserve will provide liquidity to the financial system, sometimes it's called injecting liquidity, that means they're buying. The Federal Reserve is buying assets in order to provide a bid so that they don't fall further in price. How do they do that? In the press release earlier this week by the Federal Reserve, it said the Federal Reserve's role is guided by its mandate from Congress to promote maximum employment and stable prices. That's its dual mandate. They continue, along with its responsibility to promote the stability of the financial system. In support of these goals, the Federal Reserve is using its full range of authorities to provide powerful support for the flow of credit to American families and businesses. Providing credit, lending money, that's what the Federal Reserve does, and it buys assets. What did it announce? It's going to continue its large-scale asset purchase program, what is commonly known as quantitative easing. In the amounts needed, unlimited QE, they're already buying $75 billion of Treasury securities a day, which equates to about $1.6 trillion a month. They will be buying $50 billion of mortgage-backed securities and also commercial mortgage-backed securities. They will continue their repo operation, their repurchase agreement, where they're willing to lend on a short-term basis in exchange for collateral. Except they changed it. Now they're going to charge no interest, 0% interest on those loans. They're making $300 billion of loans available to investment-grade corporations. Four-year loans with no interest payments for the first six months. They're going to purchase corporate bonds, something they've not done. Those that are rated triple B or better, so investment grade, with maturities of five years or less. So they are providing liquidity to the bond market in that way. Just for context, $300 billion is about 5% of the investment grade corporate bond market in the U.S. In addition, the Federal Reserve said they plan on announcing the establishment of a Main Street business lending program to support lending to eligible small and medium-sized businesses, complementing efforts by the Small Business Administration. They are going to establish an additional facility, a term asset-backed securities loan facility, to support the flow of credit to consumers and businesses. And they will be and have announced other things. But it's all about credit, lending more money. And as I thought about this, we're a week into social distancing. We've gone on hikes. We've gone on walks. We spent a lot of time at home. We did go to the grocery store early Saturday morning, two stores in order to get what we needed. I bought two shirts online from a slow fashion brand that I wanted to support that had, had shut their stores temporarily due to the pandemic. A weekend, my thought is, what if this went on a year? What if it was just a timeout? We shut the economy for a year. We paused it. It was a gap year. 
What would prevent that? What would the harm be? We can simplify our lives, buy less stuff. What doesn't go away is bills, and we have bills to pay. Interest, rent, mortgage payments. The other thing that doesn't go away is entropy. Things break and need to be fixed. I suppose to some aspect, credit, the ability to borrow, would be helpful. But having cash payments would be even better, which is what the federal government is working on. But back to this interview between Scott Pelley and Neil Kashkari. Pelley asked, can you characterize what the Fed has done this week as flooding the system with money? Kashkari responds, yes, exactly. Pelley, and is there no end to your ability to do that? Kashkari, there is no end to our ability to do that. There is an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. We will do whatever we need to do to make sure there is enough cash in the banking system. An infinite amount of money. Because they create it digitally, electronically, as Kashkari says. How? Well, in the case of quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve purchases securities from its member banks, U.S. Treasury securities, mortgage-backed bonds. The banks transfer the bonds, the U.S. Treasuries, the MBS, to the Federal Reserve, while at the same time the Federal Reserve pays for the bonds by increasing the bank's reserve balances at the central bank. Each commercial bank has an account at the central bank. They get new money into that account in exchange for those bonds. Where does the Fed get that money? They create it digitally. They just change the reserve account balances. It's an accounting entry. And they do have an infinite ability to do that. Now, how would it work for corporate bonds? Would banks need to go buy corporate bonds in the marketplace and then sell them to the Fed? Or would the Fed go directly into the secondary market? Kashkari said what he and other central bankers learned from the 2008 crisis is they were too slow. They needed to be quicker to act, and they will be more aggressive this time around and more generous and less worried about businesses and households that are less deserving receiving help. Not so worried about moral hazard that. Businesses are less guarded about risk because they feel like the government will help bail them out. It's a sensitive topic. A lot of businesses took on a bunch of corporate debt in order to buy back their stock. And now many of those businesses are struggling because they didn't have sufficient reserves and, frankly, because we shut down the economy, which is not something you typically think is going to happen in the course of running a business. Economic slowdown, yes. Having your revenues cut 90% in three weeks, not really something you can plan for. I mentioned the U.S. federal government is working on emergency economic aid, a package worth up to $2 trillion. The latest I saw, it will probably include $500 billion in an economic stabilization fund that would be used to assist distressed companies in conjunction with the Federal Reserve. There will be government payments to households, $1,200 to 
to those earning up to $75,000 a year, with an additional $500 per child. Smaller amounts for those earning more than that. A PLUS member posted a link on the forum to a draft of the House bill that mentioned, and I have no idea if this will be in the final bill or not, digital wallets. The Federal Reserve, working through its member banks, could provide cash to households directly through some type of digital wallet. Access to central bank cash, these these reserves. It's incredible that that's what it could come to. Before, you would have to go to a bank to borrow money, or the federal government would mail you a check or deposit it electronically into your bank account. Will there be some mechanism to get cash directly from the Federal Reserve? I've mentioned I've been reading a book by David Shee on the simple life, plain living and high thinking. He was sharing about some of the New Deal programs back during the Great Depression. One of the challenges, and I guess opportunities, when it comes to these big federal relief programs in a time of economic distress is it gives politicians an opportunity to fund things that they feel very strongly about. Let me put it that way. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, January 1933. We have to restore the balance of the population. Get them, the unemployed, out of the big centers of population so that they will not be dependent on home relief. At another point, he said, there are hundreds of thousands of boys who know only the pavement of cities, and that means they can only take jobs that are directly connected with the pavement of the cities. They established the Civilian Conservation Corps, 500,000 volunteers. They made a dollar a day planting trees, building roads, parks, and bridges. It was the most successful New Deal program. And it was extremely popular among Republicans, among Democrats, Libertarians. But there were other programs that didn't work out quite so well. Arthur E. Morgan, he was the first director of the Tennessee Valley Authority. He said the TVA was not primarily a dam building job, a fertilizer job or a power transmission job. And that's what they would do. They would build big infrastructure projects. But he he said instead, the TVA was, quote, the first place in America where we can sit down and design a civilization, a designed and planned social and economic order. They wanted to design garden cities around some of these big infrastructure programs. But it turns out that the people that lived in the area didn't necessarily want outsiders deciding what their town should look like. There was a Department of Interior's Division of Subsistent Homesteads, Their mission was to resettle the unemployed into homestead communities where they would receive federally subsidized lands, assistance with building their own homes, teaching them to raise subsistent crops, learn handicrafts, and basically a back-to-the-land movement. It didn't work. There was a follow-up study by the Department of Agriculture where they reported that those who participated in this program, quote, did not want to be subsistence homesteaders, rather to have the security of employment and the adequacy of income 
which a properly functioning economy could offer them, but which subsistence homesteads could not. Participants displayed a fundamental and continuing desire to live according to the dominant tastes of the modern industrial world. They didn't want to homestead, they just wanted a job and to be able to buy things. I suspect there are similar grand designs within any relief program. So we'll see how it turns out. But one of the challenges is, and and one of the sticking points is, who's going to administer it? And how to protect against corruption? Because it's the, the scale is tremendous. And it's something that has to be done if we're going to shut down the economy. But there are some major consequences of this. Specifically, the risk of inflation or deflation. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Inflation comes when there is a huge increase in the money supply usually through bank lending, but it could be done through the Federal Reserve creating money and it flowing out into the economy, particularly if it goes directly to consumers, or be it through loans, through the Small Business Administration. So if you get all this money and there's capacity constraints because there's not enough goods and services being produced, but people are still willing to spend the money, then that could lead to not enough raw materials and inputs. And so prices go up. Businesses start raising their prices, and those that are employed start demanding higher wages, and so you get into an inflationary mindset, particularly if there's a supply shock, because there's not enough being produced. We could also get a demand shock, where people aren't able to go out and buy things, or don't have a desire to buy things, and want to hoard their money. 
and businesses start dropping their prices to encourage buying, and you see falling prices or deflation. We do not know which one will happen. One of the things I did last week is I purchased a Treasury Inflation Protection Security. This is a bond that protects against rising inflation because its principal value is marked up by the rate of inflation or the changes in the consumer price index. Last week on one day, rates spiked on these bonds. I bought a five-year Treasury Inflation Protection Security. Its yield was 0.7%. It had the same yield as a regular, a nominal Treasury bill. And you can compare, and I talk about this in my book, you can look at the nominal yield on Treasury bonds, or just its regular interest rate yield, and compare it to the yield on tips. And the difference is the what's known as the break-even inflation rate. What is the market's expectation for inflation, for rising prices as priced into bonds? And it was zero. The market was assuming that inflation would be zero over the next five years. So I bought it. Now, when you look at tips, the rates fell again. They're back down to zero. So 10-year Treasury inflation protection securities are priced assuming inflation over the next decade will only be 0.8%. One way to protect against inflation is through tips. I believe the best way to do that is to buy individual bonds through your broker as opposed to a fund or an exchange-traded fund. Because one of the risks with tips is the yield could go up. And we saw this during the great financial crisis. The yield on tips was close to zero. And within a matter of months, it got up to 4%. And had you held tips, the price would have dropped significantly. You still would have gotten the inflation protection, but you also would have experienced a capital loss. If you own the individual bond, you can just hold it to maturity. And so you're guaranteed to get back the principal balance, either the face value that it was issued at, or it's adjusted value based on what inflation was. That's one solution. We don't know what inflation will be. We don't know what interest rates are going to be. This, this is a real test. Several years ago, I did an episode on the dollar collapse, and we looked at the views of Peter Schiff. His view was that when the next recession hit, that the Fed would instigate quantitative easing in unlimited amounts and that people would freak out and that rates would skyrocket and that inflation would come. We're not there yet. We've talked about modern monetary theory where the government should just spend willy-nilly to some extent. The government's going to be spending huge amounts of money for this relief effort. The budget deficit is going to balloon significantly. Will investors start pricing in a higher term premium, which is an incremental yield to protect against unexpected inflation? Right now, they're not pricing in any inflation or very little inflation. But will they demand higher rates, higher real rates? We don't know. I get an email from a Plus member. Actually, it was in the member forum. He says, my question is about the long run. My wife and I have another 25 years or so until retirement. And a few months ago, decided to tighten up our risk exposure a bit to the Vanguard 2030 fund. It's 65% stocks, 35% bonds. My question is this. Barring an existential threat like the world coming to a literal end, 
is there any harm to leaving it alone if we don't plan on touching those funds for the next 25 years? For folks investing through the 2008 crisis, with a similar asset allocation, did things work out fine? For most individuals that had a long time horizon, back then it did work out just fine. Markets recovered. The economy eventually recovered. The job market eventually recovered. But it took, as Neil Kashkari pointed out, 10 years for the job market to recover. So you don't have to necessarily change your asset allocation if you have a long-term time horizon. I can tell you what I did this past week. I woke up two in the morning, as I suppose many of you are prone to do. Two in the morning, your, your mind's racing. And I thought, what do I own? What do we own as a family? What could be the maximum hit to our net worth, to our ability to, to live and thrive if this shutdown went for a year or more? I looked at all the different assets and I thought, well, this is going to be worth anything. This might be worth half. This is going to maintain its value. And realized we were, we were going to be okay. But it's sort of a stoical approach. Like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And how would I deal with it? With the hope and the expectation that that will not be the case. I'm optimistic that we will get through this, just like we've gotten through other pandemics. And part of that optimism comes from seeing what is going on in Asia. In China, it's been two months since Wuhan was shut down. Now, road congestion, this is, this is according to Capital Economics, is now 65% of the level from 2019. It was 20 to 30% a few weeks ago. Subway systems in large cities, they've gone from 10% to 40% of the 2019 norm. Power station coal consumption is now 80% of 2019 levels. 30% of migrant workers have not returned to the cities that they work at, which means 70% have. The economy is starting to rebound very, very slowly, and infections haven't started increasing yet. Now, we could get another wave, but you're seeing the economy in Japan start to get back to work. So we will overcome this. Central banks and federal governments are doing what they can to help businesses and households make it through. In some ways, we're just in the beginning. The PMI business surveys, flash surveys came in today. Abysmal. The jobless rate is going to go up. We don't know how it's going to end. But if you're young, you have many years, and your portfolio is already down, you can ride it out. And when things turn around, when there is a vaccine, when the economy is showing signs of life again, it will be an incredibly good buying opportunity for stocks and other risk assets. Hopefully that day will come sooner rather than later. That is episode 292. Show notes can be found at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly email, The Insider's Guide. It includes the links to that week's episode, plus an essay on money, investing, and the economy that just goes to that email list. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.